Hey guys, Greg here. Just a quick note before we get into this episode of Surprisingly Brilliant. We recorded all 14 episodes of this podcast before coronavirus became a global pandemic, which is why when you listen to this episode and we talk about quarantine, we don't refer to the lockdown situation we're currently facing as I record this pickup in early May 2020. This is also a good opportunity to point out that technically the quarantine that we talk about in this episode and the society-wide lockdown that many of us are experiencing right now are actually two different things. Quarantine is a state of isolation that someone is placed into if they've possibly been exposed to an infectious disease, whereas the lockdown that we are experiencing is a society-wide effort to restrict the spread of a disease. So technically, quarantine and lockdown are two different things. Also, because this was recorded pre-pandemic, it's why our discussion around healthy carriers doesn't mention COVID-19, and why our tone is a bit lighter than it might have been had we recorded this episode more recently. We do, however, talk about infection and death and the ethics of dealing with disease carriers, so if you're not in the mood for that, I suggest you jump to another episode of the podcast. Okay, and with that, it's over to Greg and Marin of February 2020. Great story, this. Hope you enjoy it. You're going to like this one. Oh, yeah? Because it's microbe related. <gasps> My microbe senses are tingling. So I instantly know this is going to be oh, a Marin microbe so story. I'm so pumped. So this story involves one of science's worst injustices. Ooh. Hundreds of nasty infections. Ooh. And millions of deaths. So right up my street then. It is right up your street. <laughs> and the way I'm going to make it right up my street is by starting with pudding. Oh, well then. Yes. Peach Melba, actually. Peaches, ice cream, raspberry sauce. Oh, that sounds tasty. Classic combo. Wait, how is this related? It's the signature dish of one of history's most famous cooks. And indeed, most famous disease carriers. Both at the same time? But first, welcome back to Surprisingly Brilliant. Can't just tease with that, Greg. This I need to know. This is a science history podcast from Seeker that tells the stories of surprising yet brilliant discoveries, ideas, or indeed, people. I am Marin Hunsberger. And I am Greg Foote. And for this episode, I am the storyteller, which means Marin knows diddly squat about this. But I'm so ready. Yeah, this is totally in your, what did you say, ballpark? I, I said so what you usually say, yeah. up, your, up my street. I, I've adopted your way of, uh, you say ballpark, <laughs> I'll say street and we'll just switch. Anyway, <laughs> I know nothing about it. I'm so ready to see what's going on and I need to know what happens next. Our main character in today's science history true crime story Ooh. is Mary Mallon. <gasps> I think I know what we're about I to th- talk about. I was like, I think as soon as I say her name, you're oh. gonna you're gonna work out is right. So our story starts with Marin, not Marin, Mary. <laughs> I was like, that's me. I'm here. Yes. <laughs> it starts with Mary in the kitchen. So she's rustling up some peach melba when suddenly a guy barges in and tells her that he wants a stool sample. Um, no, a thank scoop you. Of poop. Uh, I would be very alarmed. Uh, and urine and blood. No, th- no, no. What's the full suite? Get out my kitchen. Mary's a bit shocked, as you'd imagine. She asks why. I, yes, valid question. His answer is that there are tiny animals living inside you and they're killing people. <laughs> okay. But that doesn't make any sense to Mary. Okay, not only does she not know of anyone that she's actually made ill, let alone killed, but she also has no idea what these tiny animals are that he talks of. This is 1906. Okay, all right, so we're early on. Early days for microbes. So Mary's like, don't know what you're on about. I've never done this. Uh, So she runs at him with a fork. Yeah. (laughs) 
How yeah. about it? Okay, Mary. <laughs> Get out, you swine. This is a very valid reaction. I'm on Mary's side here. I would do the same. So it's 1906, early 20th century America. Cities are growing fast. You've got electricity, you've got telephones, you've got new moving picture shows, automobiles. Really exciting times. World is changing. For like engineering and science, you've got heavier than air flying machines being developed. Aeroplane? Mm, but when it comes to illness, this is decades away from commercialised antibiotics. Mm. So you could still die from a scratch on your finger Oof. if it got infected. Because not many people know what causes illness. Not many people know about bacteria. Mary Mallon is an Irish immigrant to the US. She's a respected cook for wealthy families. And this guy comes running in. I'm going to turn to my expert for this episode. This is going to be Dr. Klaas Cahilla from the University of Oxford. George is the name of the guy who rushes in requesting Mary's samples. He's a private investigator. Intruder. Over to you, class. A guy called George Soper knocks on her door and tells her, you're a chronic typhoid carrier. You've actually been killing people or infecting people via your profession, in which previously you've just been told you're good at. And you happen to carry this new thing that we call bacteria, but which you know nothing of. Um, and you either cooperate or I come back with the public health authorities. Yeah. So can you imagine? I mean, you're you're just trying to do your job. You're Mary Mellon. You're trying to cook up your peach melba. Somebody comes in and accuses you literally of murdering people and uses these words that you don't understand. Like you have no idea what he's talking about. You, of course, you would rush him with a fork. For anyone listening who doesn't know what bacteria is, essentially a type of microorganism, small stuff. You loads can see of them under a microscope. Different varieties of them, and some of them make you sick. They're all. I just as your resident microbiologist here, <laughs> I do have to point out that we are also like largely composed of microbes and we would not be alive without them. They help us do all of the things that our bodies do, like digest our food and protect our immune systems from bad things. But yes, many of them can make us sick. So I asked class, what is the state of the situation at that time? Who actually knows about bacteria? Yeah, where are we at with our knowledge here? People in Germany and France have been studying bacteria and pointing out that bacteria could actually be the causes of many of the well-known diseases of the time, dating back to the 1860s, 1870s. And that's 30, 40 years before Mary is cooking. But the public and Mary have not heard of it. They mm. don't understand what on earth it is. Well, and things things that you can't see, right? I think that's really crucial, especially at this point in time. Like if somebody cannot physically see the evidence of the thing that would make them sick or that would kill somebody, it's really hard to get a grip on. It's hard to understand. So we're talking typhoid today. So mm. typhoid is a potentially deadly illness caused by a particular one of those bacterium, right, caused by a particular bacteria. I'll let class give you its full name. The official name is Salmonella enterica zirova typhi, but Salmonella typhi is, is usually what it's referred to. Yeah, so uh, I'm going to go for Salmonella typhi. Fair enough. Yeah, or just typhi. <laughs> <laughs> and then you get typhoid. Got it. So typhoid fever is the illness caused by this organism, Salmonella typhi. Yeah, you get a uh, high fever for a long time, you get fatigue, you get nausea, headache, Yuck. pain, like abdominal pain, constipation, diarrhea, and sometimes Death. Oh, casual. Fine. A little bit of a little bit of death. Just a little bit. Mixed in. I looked it up. This is great. The bacteria is typically transmitted through contaminated water and food. Sure. Normally through what's known as a fecal oral route. Sounds about like what it is, probably. Mm. Does what it says on the tin. Could be sewage <laughs> getting into water supply. But also 
Not washing your hands. Yeah, I reckon. I mean, but it's not something that people necessarily know that they actually need to do. Oh, sure. Um, over to class. But that is really cutting edge science. It's almost like somebody who studies quantum physics nowadays, um, uh, trying to then translate uh, that science to to the common populace. So Mary Malone, she might have heard of this science, but really to translate that into your daily practices in life was new. I feel like that makes total sense because I feel like if anybody came up to me on the street, say, and asked me to explain quantum physics, and let's say I haven't written any scripts about it, which, you know, I have. I was about to be like, okay, (laughs) hey, Marin, tell me about quantum physics. I honestly couldn't tell you that much. So I feel like I I see the parallel here because you're talking about things that you've never seen, you don't understand, nobody's talking about. It would be, it would make, makes a lot of sense that she's confused. So it is unlikely that Mary would know about bacteria. It's unlikely that she knows she should wash her hands. But what she does know is that she is not sick. Right? She knows that herself she's not oh, sick. Oh, so that's and her if she evidence. she's not sick, how is she passing that sickness right. on to somebody else? Well, and then how, how can she be killing someone? I mean, how is she? Is she? Are they right? Class? If you get salmonella typhi infection, it spreads through your gut to your bloodstream by hijacking your body's immune cells. And in some patients, it also hides out in the gallbladder and returns to the gut in the form of bile. And currently, estimates believe that between 1% and 6% of people who survive an initial typhoid infection retain salmonella typhi in their system and continue to shed it fairly regularly via their stool. Those people are referred to as healthy carriers or asymptomatic carriers. And that is a really new concept. Mary is a healthy carrier of typhoid. That would be so confusing because, as you say, she has no symptoms. She's not sick. So why would she ever think that she could be getting other people sick? This is, I guess, one of those elements of the story that's surprisingly brilliant. This concept of healthy carriers, that someone can appear healthy but carry disease. Pretty hard to diagnose. So this is a really new idea around the time that this typhoid situation is unfolding in New York with Mary, right? Yeah, and this is back in the early 1900s. You know, the existence and and science of bacteria was only known by a few people. Mm. This concept of healthy carriers, known by even less people. And it had been around in science for about four-ish years, but had not reached the general public. It would seem ridiculous. I mean, just as as a regular person living your life in the 1900s, you'd be like, that's not real. There's no way. There's invisible things living on me and not making me sick. So I think we can understand why Mary decides to run at George with a fork. Yeah, I'm right? still on Mary's side here. So what happens next? So George, after being chased away, um, <laughs> sends around a doctor called Josephine Baker. For anyone listening who thinks of that name and thinks of the uh, French entertainer and indeed French resistance agent and oh, yeah. civil rights oh, activist, yeah, yeah. not that one, no. Oh, different one. No, Dr. Josephine Baker. lady doctor in the... 18 and 1900s. She also gets turned away, shall we say. (laughs) And then she comes back the day after with reinforcements. Uh So Mary looks out the window. She sees three policemen surrounding the house. There's another with Dr. Baker on the doorstep. There's a horse-drawn ambulance parked nearby, ready to take her away. Mary pegs it and hides. Yeah, you would. I mean... Imagine you just just look outside and you're like, nope. From Mary's perspective, she's literally being wrongfully accused of murder. Like you can picture her being, I'm about to be arrested for killing people. I haven't done it. I'm not, I'm not guilty. I would totally run. They search for her for hours. Oh no. They eventually find her. 
where do you think they might find her? Oh no. Does it have something to do with our hand washing situation? <laughs> it's slightly ironic. She's in her neighbor's outside toilet. Oh God. There's an image. That's a beautiful detail. <laughs> she doesn't go easily. Apparently on the way to hospital, Malin is, I quote, maniacal. You would be. So maniacal that Baker has to sit on her. <laughs> That's an unlawful use of force there. <laughs> the doctor then later said it was like being in a being in a cage with an angry lion. No, Mary. So where does she go? What happens to her? All that and more after this. Now, if you get a bacterial infection nowadays, you'll likely get given antibiotics. Sure. Which will kill them. Antibiotics weren't around until 1948. Oh, so that's so 40 years after Mary's arrest. Not available. So what's going to happen to her? Well, there was an experimental surgery where you remove someone's gallbladder. Because that's where the bacteria are sort of uh, hiding out and making you this asymptomatic carrier. Which I don't think they'd know at the time necessarily, mm. but they obviously knew that they'd realise that taking a gallbladder out could have some sort of effect. Interesting. Mary, however, said, I've nothing the matter with my gallbladder. Because she doesn't. Because of course she knows how a gallbladder is, but anyway. Yeah. But then she does say, no knife will be put on me. Good for her. So the doctor and the authorities turn to the best option that they have at the time, and that is quarantine. The only solution we have to an illness like this is that person just has to go away and be by themselves. Lock them up. Again, Mary's not sick. So not she, outwardly. Right, exactly. She's she's not doesn't have symptoms. So she's like you want to put me in jail for what? Exactly. So uh, keep that in mind as we kind of progress with uh, with the story. We've got the amazing opportunity to speak to the Director of Infectious Hazard Management at the World Health Organization Whoa. about this, Dr. Sylvie Brion. At the beginning of the 20th century, uh, for many epidemic diseases, there was no vaccine, no treatment. And the only measures we could put in place was um, isolation of people or quarantine or cordon sanitaire, uh, what we called non-pharmaceutical interventions. So where do they send her? Like, what facilities do we have at the time for this kind of quarantine? We might think it's like a, hit, um, a hospital or whatever, right. um, an institution in New York, Manhattan, but it's not. She's shipped off to an island. Oh, God. North Brother Island, one of a pair of small islands located in uh, New York City's East River. They basically decide to lock her up and throw away the key. Problem solved. Yeah, not for Mary. <laughs> the scientists are loving it because they get to regularly poke and prod her. They get a nice fresh sample every She's day. She's just like a mouse. She's basically a lab mouse. Interestingly, those samples sometimes come back negative, sometimes Weird. positive. The typhoid. Is it because of our test? It's yeah. because. Is it because of the, sh the? So it's because of the tests. Yeah, the tests are just not that accurate. But Ooh. historians, scientists do agree now that she absolutely did have typhoid because when she died, they did an autopsy of her gallbladder and that showed it. Oh wow! But we had to wait all the way until the end of her life. Crazy. So she's there. She is on North Brother Island. I'm going to fast forward a few years. She's there for years. <laughs> Yeah, she's been there for a couple of years. With other sick people, right? So like other people are quarantined on North Brother Island. Well, I assumed, potentially naively, that when you get quarantined, it is just you. Because that would make sense. Because that would make sense, right? Because yeah. otherwise you're going to spread all the other things amongst all the other people. It's going to be like a Petri dish or right. Petri dish of that, <laughs> of that situation. But I, I'll kind of get to who's on there with her. But what happens a couple of years after she'd been on there is that the press get hold of her story. Oh no. Obviously no one had got wind of it before then. And there's a two-page spread in the New York American, June the 20th, 1909. And she's given the name that she becomes known as throughout history. I'm going to pass my laptop to you so you can see a copy of the, the paper. Oh God, so this is the newspaper. 
It says Typhoid Mary. Wow. Okay, and there's there's a an old timey 1900s ish portrait of her. She it's a drawing, and uh, oh my god, she's ha- she's holding a skillet in one hand, and with the other, it looks like she's cracking an egg into it. But what's falling? But it's not an egg. It, what's falling from her hand are instead skulls. So this is like you subtle know, messaging. Yeah, I think. just subtle. Yeah, just real under under <laughs> understated. <laughs> That's really unfortunate because it really it look it. I feel like it paints her as a villain, really. It says the extraordinary predicament of Mary Mallon, a prisoner on New York's quarantine hospital. Okay, well, you know, that gives her a little more. But she's not happy because they call her Typhoid Mary, right? She's like... Yeah, that would suck. Okay, wait, the, re- <laughs> the reason why I know Typhoid Mary, the name, and the reason why I've known it for so long is because my mother's name is Mary. And my dad, whenever she would get a cold, would make her, would quarantine her in the guest bedroom so <laughs> that she didn't get him sick. And if he, she ever did get him sick, then he would call her Typhoid Mary. <laughs> So that's how I learned from a very young age who Typhoid Mary is. Except I didn't know any of this backstory. Wow. I assume she knew she was sick. Does that make and it even knew- more inappropriate and unfair? Yes. As well as locking your mum into a in a room. <laughs> You're not coming out, Mary. You know what happened to Typhoid Mary? Get in there, Hunsberger. We don't want another another Malin. Pretty much. She writes a letter to the editor of New York American, basically being like. This I'm not happy. Yeah, she has some str- strongly worded some, some strongly letter. Worded letter. <laughs> Actually, she ends up sending it to a lawyer in a mm. petition to try to get her out. But I've got a little extract from the letter here that I want you to read. What does she have to A couple to of say? extracts. Here you go. Have a read of that. So she says, Dr. Park has had me illustrated in Chicago. I wonder how the said Dr. William H. Park would like to be insulted and put in the journal and call him or his wife Typhoid William Park. I have been, in fact, a peep show for everybody. The tuberculosis men would say, there she is, the kidnapped woman. There was never any effort by the board authority to do anything for me, excepting to cast me on the island and keep me a prisoner without being sick or needing medical treatment. That's Strong points. So good. There's so much that she kind of puts in those just few lines, right? So first of all, she's obviously rightly insulted and upset that she's been cast as, as Typhoid Mary. The causer of typhoid. I mean, they... they that cartoons and everything. Her name and the disease synonymous. Yep. And then she also mentions, this answers your previous question, she talks about the, tubercul- the tuberculosis, tuberculosis men. So this is on North Brother Island. So obviously these different groups of these different patients. And no bacterial infection can really be treated. So if you're surviving and you're sick, they have to send you somewhere. So she's not alone. Oh, geez. She's surrounded by lots of these other quarantined people. And what it also says is she still doesn't accept that she's sick, right? Yeah. Because technically she's not sick. She's not a, to her she's view a anyway. not sick potential carrier of sickness, right. which, as you rightly said, sucks. So did the petition work? Did this letter work? Did she get out? No. Oh. But she then invoked something called habeas corpus, which I've oh, not I've heard, heard about before. I've heard of that, but just from like, I don't know, Law and Order SVU. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> Essentially, it is requesting to be brought before a judge mm. to try to get your release under unless lawful grounds are shown for your continued detention. Okay, good for her. Also, that would have been so hard. Like she's quarantined 
on an island separate from the rest of the world and she's still advocating for herself to be yeah, like, no, so. get me get off me of off this, this island. island. <laughs> uh, but the New York Supreme Court, they deny her request oh, man. because they are apparently unwilling to take the responsibility of releasing her. Well, and this, I think, is a lot of this fault should be laid at the feet of the newspaper because if the newspaper has identified her as this villain, this causer of typhoid, then the now New York state government is in a bind yep. because if they release her, she's this well-known public figure. Yep. And they will be responsible for any backlash from the public. So I feel like if Mary it's had been less... almost. Yeah. And, and, yeah. She'd been less uh, infamous, maybe they would have said yes. Yeah. She does eventually get released, though. Oh, thank God. Eight months later, we're in February 1910 now. She has been in quarantine for three years. Oh, my God. But she gets released. Over to class. From the 1880s onwards, bacteriologists, the more they realise that there are actually quite a few carriers out there, and that quarantine, which is a really drastic intervention into your personal rights, is not a viable approach as a mass strategy for civilian populations. And so in the case of New York, regulators rethink, and she is allowed to go out of quarantine provided she adheres to specific hygiene rules and she does not work in critical professions. All right, so she's out, but she can't work in a critical profession. So something like cooking, (laughs) right? Which is fair enough. She is still a healthy carrier of typhoid after all. So she goes to work at a laundrette. Hmm. Still doesn't seem like a great idea. Mm, I was thinking about that. I was thinking she's still going to be shedding typhoid. Yeah, under like clean laundry. And if she's still not washing her hands, I thought, surely that's going to be just as bad. But then I thought, you know, it's not like they then eat or lick their laundry. Yeah, I guess that's true. It's harder to get it in your mouth. (laughs) I I can see it's not nearly as critical. Slight segue now. Uh, I'd like to tell you about two other chefs, Chef Brown and Chef Breshoff. Okay. One works in a restaurant, one works in a hospital. They both make delicious food for very happy customers and patients. Uh But then some people who eat their food start getting sick with typhoid fever. Mm. Chef Brown's full name was Mary Brown. Chef Breshoff's full name is Mary Breshoff. I'm starting to see where this is going. Your theory is... Oh, Mary's not that great at coming up with alternate names. <laughs> I think, right, I've changed my surname. That'll get them. But I'm not very good at remembering my name. What do I do? I can't call my name like Jennifer or Janet because they might yell it and I might not be able to respond. She still wants to keep her cover by always responding when somebody says her name. Isn't that what spy, I think spy agencies actually say that you have to keep some element of the truth. Maybe so not that, your whole first name. Yeah, though. I mean, that's maybe not the best move on Mary's part, to be honest. But she's not a spy. She's a cook. So swapping Peach Melbourne for Smelly Socks is not her idea of fun. She She can't work as a chef with her old name. She changes it. Not quite so simple a solution. Time out though, right? Because I get it. I sympathise with her. I know, me too. She's a character in a story that she doesn't know enough about. Mm -hmm. She doesn't know about bacteria. She doesn't know about healthy carriers. And she is being, not even asked, she's being told that she needs to dramatically change her life based on something that she can't see, can't feel. And give up the thing that she loves to do and that is her way of making a living. It's her identity as as well. As an independent woman. Yeah, it's like uh, in uh, Cool Hand Luke when they say what we have here is a failure to communicate. (laughs) That's what's happening. You ever seen that movie, Greg? No. <laughs> you got to get get on your classic film okay. horse here, all right? <laughs> so what happens next? You get slightly different stories depending on which account you read. I mean, that's history, right? Subjective. One source says that Dr. Baker, again, is called to investigate a case of typhoid 
at the restaurant or the hospital, whichever Mary is, is there. Oh uh, and Dr. Baker spots Mary and she flees. That's one version of the story. My favourite version, though, is George Soper's version. He was a private investigator. He writes about this a lot. I don't think we can necessarily trust his accounts that much, but he basically says that he goes to the hospital and he recognises Mary's handwriting. Oh, yeah, right, George. Because he's that awesome. Regardless of what the actual truth is, 1915, five years after she was first released, Mary is caught sent back into quarantine on no, North Brother Island. for round two? I mean, to be fair, she did break the rule. She wasn't supposed to work in a quote-unquote critical role. Does that deserve going back to quarantine? I mean, no. Could she just go to jail? This is an excellent question because at this point in time, I'm assuming we have no laws around like, hey, you can't violate somebody's bodily autonomy and throw them in quarantine against their consent, right? Like that's, I guess, something we're still contending with in a lot of public health outbreaks today, like in an Ebola outbreak breaks say people don't want to go to the hospital because that seems to a community where people are going to die, right? So you can't force someone to go to the doctor. You can't force someone into quarantine anymore. But obviously we're doing it in the 1900s. I want to chat about quarantine, actually, like the ethics of it as well. And also, were there ever healthy carriers of typhoid and how were they treated? We're going to get to all of that after this quick break. We're back. Mary's quarantined for round two. Mary Mallon, typhoid Mary, thrown back onto North Brother Island, where, spoiler alert, she stays until she dies 23 what? years later in 1938. She stays for 23 years? They, there's no solution in that time. She's there the whole time until her death. Oh my God, poor Mary. So what do we think about quarantine? Is it is it okay to lock someone away if you've got no way to treat them and they pose a threat to public health. I mean, no. <laughs> but I mean, and who and who gets to decide who has that power? Yes. Do you then have a responsibility to protect the public? And what is your responsibility to this individual? I mean, I get the I get the need to prevent them from infecting other people. Sure. Like I understand that. Maybe physically taking them out of the population is something that you need to do. But if there's no treatment, what do you actually do. Can't then. just dump them on an island and then forget about them. I mean, the flip side, of course, is if you do allow them out into the population, then I can pass it on to others. So we asked Dr. Sylvie Briand, the Director of Infectious Hazard Management for the World Health Organization, what the current protocol is for critical infectious diseases like this. Now we do have bubbles uh, where people are indeed isolated in a sense because they are in the uh, plastic bubble with a transparent wall, but they are not completely isolated from their family and communities and people can see them, can talk to them, but uh, just there is... Uh, uh, this bubble is protecting and, and uh, protecting the family and the community from transmission. Mm, so the technology has advanced so that you can keep them safe biologically, but they don't necessarily have to go bunk off to an island. Yeah, so they're on, they're in a little bubble. They're in their own little okay. kind of protected sphere. I mean, I imagine we still have trouble getting people to even adhere or say yes to stuff like that. There's the ethical question of all of this, which is who has the power to make those decisions, exactly, and what can you impose on someone when they're not necessarily accepting themselves. Mm that they are sick, especially how, with something like a healthy carrier. And how's that codified into law? Do you know what I mean? Like, is someone then breaking the law if they say, no, you can't put me in a bubble? Like, this is all medical ethics and how it comes into the way we <laughs> structure our societies is something I've never really thought about.
exciting about it, I guess. And, you know, I haven't finished with Mary yet because what's interesting is the way that Mary was treated herself. So I set up the question before the break, were there other healthy carriers mm. of typhoid? Surely she can't be the only one. The only one. one, right. And other healthy typhoid carriers have been identified in New York, including two men who work in the food business. <gasps> but they're treated rather differently. One of them, Belgian-born Alphonse Cotil, owned a New York bakery. He continued to work there despite officially being forbidden to do so. And they don't throw him in jail or put him on North Brother Island? He was taken to court in 1924, which is while Mary was on North Brother Island for the second time, uh, and he just receives a suspended sentence. You're joking. They could not legally jail him on account of his health. So... So maybe he's, t- maybe he's seen as too ill for quarantine? Oh, I, I don't weird. Know. We asked class about this. Why was Mary imprisoned for so long, whereas Alphonse and others weren't? The fact that she is a woman, the fact that she is not immediately cooperating with the public health authorities, the fact that she returns to her profession and reinfects people, but also the fact perhaps that she is an Irish immigrant during this period, certainly should be considered as factors contributing to the treatment of her. Um, one should also not forget the fact that she is, again, the cause celebre, right? You know, she is the person identified in the yellow press, in the medical journals as Typhoid Mary. We can imagine how it might have been in public health authorities' offices having to justify to a concerned public that typhoid Mary has been released again after the second incidence. It's a PR nightmare for authorities. But again, this is all speculation. She is treated differently. We know she is treated differently. The reasons why she is being treated differently are not put to paper. So it's perhaps partly because she's a woman. It's perhaps partly because she's an Irish immigrant. Uh, And it probably is partly because she is the face of typhoid. Exactly. There's been this, as as Klaus says, PR nightmare mm. for the people dealing with this case. And I think this is an excellent time to point out this idea of a patient zero in an outbreak, this idea that somebody is the quote unquote cause, right? That's something that is often reported, right? We want to talk about the first case, the first person who got something. Really, epidemiologically, it's not actually possible to determine who got it first ever. It's just, you know, someone who is a node of a network of outbreaks. And we now call them index cases. And we try not to call them patient zero because it places so much blame on someone and vilifies them, really creating a situation something like this. You also spot the official documents of the time include mention that she is an Irish woman, <laughs> right? whereas other carriers don't need to be identified by their race or their gender. Because there's a lot of prejudice against the Irish at, at this point in time and people are looking for a scapegoat and a reason to distrust and not like people who seem different from them. They're kind of known as, quote, dirty immigrants. Ugh. They're kind of responsible for disease epidemics. Which I feel like has been ascribed to Every single wave of immigrants that has ever come to a new place, including America, like that, I feel like that perception happens every time. So this is called disease blame, Mm. right? And and there's something even deeper going on. I find this really interesting. So we, I say we because I think all of us, Mm. you know, us included, we have a bad habit of seeing disease is coming from other people. (laughs) All right, I don't know about you, but you know, if I'm hanging out with a mate at the weekend, I get sick three or four days later, I'm like, you gave that to me. It's my dad. (laughs) It's like your dad. Yeah, quarantining. I love you, dad. Typhoid Mary. (laughs) It's great. (laughs) But when we are confronted by new and scary illnesses, people create scapegoats. Yeah. 
Because people, it's it's chaotic, it's random. We want to exert some kind of sense of control or a narrative and find some sort of sense of reason happening. Get this. Jewish people were blamed for the Black Death. The immigrant Irish were said to be responsible for cholera. Hmm. Syphilis was pinned on, well, pretty much everyone. <laughs> it's British, not me, it's you. <laughs> the British blamed the French. The French blamed the British. The Dutch blamed the Spanish. The Russian blamed the Polish. <laughs> the Japanese blamed the Portuguese. The Turks called it Christian disease. I mean... <laughs> That's pretty funny. (laughs) So Mary becomes a scapegoat for that whole typhoid crisis of the early 20th century. Class says something really kind of on point about this. Every time you label something as a disease, every time you employ a technique like quarantine or you try to sort a population into risk categories, you are making a political decision that is always coloured with our cultural preconceptions about alleged habits, about susceptibility... And every time we hear about, you know, risk populations, etc., we should bear in mind that that probably carries a load of cultural assumptions, a lot of cultural baggage with it. Long story short, any story you read or hear or watch, whether it's in the press, even if it's in a scientific paper, it is presented through the lens of the person telling it. And then you read it through your lens as well. So you cannot separate science from the world that we live in, from our culture, our society, and the beliefs and ideas we hold as people. Which links to something else that I've been thinking about, which I think that I may be guilty. Uh, I think we're both guilty now. We've just done a Uh science history podcast about typhoid, right? There's a danger that this presents typhoid as a disease of the past, Mm. something that we have long solved. Which is not the case. Typhoid Mary also allows us to think of typhoid as an ancient disease, right? Look at her hairstyle. She's in the early 20th century. What could that possibly have to do with us nowadays? But if you travel to Pakistan and you pick up an infection and you survive that infection, but you become a chronic carrier, you're basically a similar risk factor to Mary Malonen. Typhoid carriage still exists, both in low- and medium-income countries and in high-income settings too. So I think it's a mistake sometimes to portray Typhoid Mary just as an intriguing story about the past. So 40 years after Mary's heyday, antibiotics are developed. And that changes the survival rates from a 50-50 coin flip for a chance of death uh, to something more like less than 1%. Okay, so better odds. (laughs) But this is not a disease of the past. Right. Typhoid still remains in areas of the world that have poor sanitation, poor water quality, less public health infrastructure. The WHO actually currently estimate that there are 21 million cases of typhoid fever and 220,000 deaths annually worldwide. Yeah, And, and don't think that because we are privileged to live somewhere with good sanitation and a good supply of antibiotics that we are just going to be sitting pretty. Let me play you something from Dr. Sylvie Briand from the WHO one last time. The difficulty we face now is that um, the world is much more connected. People are traveling a lot and, um, and, and, and we have also a large urban centers, mega cities. And, and these are situations where um, the transmission of disease is uh, facilitated. So on one hand, we have more capacities to control outbreak. But on the other hand, we have more risk factors to have epidemics and outbreak nowadays. Ooh, that's pretty freaky. Yeah, so we have way better tools to treat typhoid, but we're also maybe at higher risk of it spreading faster than it ever would have Mm. in Mary's day. For loads of reasons, like overpopulation, Mm. as she says, you know, but also we should talk about antibiotic resistance, right? Microbes, viruses, fungi, bacteria like Salmonella typhi that caused typhoid, they're resisting the effects of medicine that was once used 
to kill them. Right. So the antibiotics that we have developed that are effective against typhoid, we may see a backslide in their efficacy because of things like antibiotic resistance. So it's not a risk that is dead and gone. It is may rear its ugly head again. Well, it is still present in some places in the world and that could spread yeah. wider if we don't all be careful about our antibiotic use. And also, I think a great thing to take away from this is communicate better in ways that the public can understand about things like bacteria and healthy carriers like in Mary's Day, but also about antibiotic resistance. Public health campaigns and communication around especially that issue and how to properly use antibiotics and when you need to take them and how is so important. Basically, take the whole course. <laughs> if, you, if you learn anything from this podcast and series. Don't take them for a virus. <laughs> Please, for the love of God. I'm going to let the final word of today's show go to class on all this. If infectious diseases like typhoid escape our control with the help of rising antimicrobial resistance, there may well be an era where the story of typhoid Mary's fate may not be so far removed from our day-to-day -day life. We managed to go from Peach Melba and hiding out in a neighbour's toilet through disease blame and the ethics of quarantine to a, a public service announcement about antibiotics. We there you go. We covered a lot there, Greg. <laughs> Surprisingly brilliant. Good work. <laughs> Wash your hands, take your antibiotics, don't eat, eat Peach eat Melba. Peach. No, I was going to go, I went for the eat more Peach Melba. I was like, I don't know if I'm going to look at the peach the same way again. <laughs> just, just wash your hands beforehand. That's all we're saying. If you enjoyed this story as much as I did, please do rate and review this podcast wherever you're listening to it. It helps us grow, as does telling your friends friends all about it. We have more episodes coming soon, so we hope that you subscribe to catch them all as they come out. And if you have a story from science history you want us to tell, or a discovery or an invention that you want to know the story behind, then please do email us at brilliant at seeker.com. A huge thanks to today's experts, Dr. Klaska Hiller from the University of Oxford. Uh, he's worked on an exhibition series all about Mary and typhoid in the past and present. Super interesting. Head to www.typhoidland.org for more about that. His Twitter handle is at typhoidland. Thanks also to Dr. Sylvie Brion from the WHO. If you would like to follow Marin here on the socials, she's at Marin Beatrice on Twitter and at Marin B, B-E-A, on Instagram because obviously she got bored of typing out the whole thing. Listen, I had some issues, okay? <laughs> Instagram is complicated. And if you want to get in touch with Greg on social media, he's a little bit simpler. He's just at Greg Foote everywhere you can find him. Simpler handle. Not necessarily simpler by mind. I mean, debatable. Well, yes, I mean, it is probably, <laughs> probably, probably is the case. This episode of Surprisingly Brilliant was produced by my team at sciencemedia.studio. Our producer was Louisa Field. Our researcher was Simona Rata. And it was written by me, Greg Foote, along with Louisa Field and Layla Batterson. Our other expert producer was Emily Feld. Our editor was Jeremy Schmidt. Our studio engineer was was Ariella Markowitz. Our supervising producer was David Zwick. And our executive producers are Brian Pendergast, Brett Kushner, and Mangish Harakador. We will see you next time where Marin will be bringing the science history goodness. We've got a good one for you. Awesome. Cannot wait. We'll see you then. We'll see you next time. Thanks. Bye. 